saw Buddy do this the other night. <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> Sorry, John. That's a better idea. All right. It always makes me look super short because like right here in my face, uh, uh, I like that. If you will get your Bibles out, uh, turn over to the book of First Thessalonians and the fourth chapter. First Thessalonians chapter four. And I'll be uh, kind of sharing with you um, it's kind of a series of lessons that I've started, and this is lesson number two, uh, but that's why I, I spent most of lesson number two reviewing lesson number one. So um, I think it's a, a fitting lesson, uh, even if you're, you're jumping in at the, at the second point of it. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and, and if you're looking down verse 11... Paul tells us that we need to aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. Aspire to lead a quiet life. And I really like the NIV translation, I just... I always read from the New King James, but I like this particular passage, the way it reads in the NIV. Uh, if you're reading from that translation, it says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. So mind your own business to work with your own hand. Ambition, it's uh, defined as a, de- a desire to achieve. And, and the Greek word that we have here that's used for either ambition or aspire, as I read from the New King James. The Greek word is defined as to be fond of or have great esteem for, to strive earnestly or to make it one's aim. This particular passage has become somewhat of a mantra for myself in the last couple of weeks. Here at the beginning of New Year, um, and of course going forward, and I I don't like to call it a New Year's resolution. I don't do New Year's resolutions. Uh, but that is kind of what a New Year's resolution is, isn't it? It's, uh, it's ambitions. They're goals that we have, aims that we are shooting for. And what better goal, what better ambition to have than one that is commanded by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul? Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Mind your own business and to work with your own hands. But what does it mean to lead a quiet life? And I think it's important for us to understand uh, the context in which Paul makes this statement. So if you've got your Bibles open there, look back up a little bit higher there in your Bibles, around verse 9, where this particular thought uh, comes from. It actually came started further up in chapter 4, at the beginning of chapter 4, but... But verse 9 gives us a good idea of where Paul is, uh, where he's thinking, uh, where he's coming from when he makes this statement. He says in verse 9, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, 
that you increase more and more. And so, so Paul's main admonition to these brethren in this particular section is that they increase in their love for one another. And so as we look at what it means to lead a quiet life, it's mostly going to revolve around this particular idea, loving one another and being able to increase in that love we have for each other. Leading a quiet life, we see directly from the text, includes minding our own business. And so we're not going to meddle in other people's affairs. We're not going to gossip, busybodies, stirring up trouble, that sort of thing. We also see from the text that it's going to include working with our own hands. My first thought when I think about uh, making it my ambition to lead a quiet life and what it means to lead a quiet life, my first thought of that is really a, a cabin out in the mountains. Maybe a little snow, a fireplace going. Maybe I think of uh, being kicked back on the beach. You know, easy living. Living a quiet life. And obviously, that's not going to be necessarily the idea that Paul is expressing here. He tells us that part of leading this quiet life means that we're going to have to work. Work with our own hands. But that is exactly what was going on at Thessalonica at this particular time. Uh, there were those who were not doing that. They were not working with their own hands. They were Mooching off the other brethren. They were not busy at work, but meddling in other people's affairs. We find that out in 2 Thessalonians in the third chapter. And that sort of behavior was causing trouble for the brethren, as you can imagine. Making life for this particular group of Christians not so quiet, not so peaceful. And so working with our own hands taking care of our own things, minding our, our own business is going to have a lot to do with our ability to, to lead a quiet life, especially in regard to how we live this life with one another. And those are the things that we will be looking at uh, this, this evening. Uh, last week, I, I said this is a series of lessons that, that uh, this is lesson two, and hopefully there's going to be three or four uh, to go with it. Uh, but I had opened up last week uh, this particular lesson, um, looking at just that word, looking at just the idea of living a quiet life. And, and if we do that, if we, just, if we just look at the word quiet, uh, the Greek word is the word, um, and we'll try it, heizukadzu, probably said that wrong, you can try it if you want, heizukadzu. Uh, but it's G2270 is the Strong's number, which is a lot easier to, uh, to reference. But uh, that particular Greek word, it, it suggests elements of, of calmness and of simplicity. Uh, Thayer's, in his, their definition of this word, defined, or as, they defi as Thayer's defined the word, we see that the, the word is associated with the idea of rest. So, Kind of does go back a little bit to my idea of kick back in the cabin in the woods or laid back on the beach. Um, but the word we see is defined in a few different ways. It's defined, first of all, as simply to just keep quiet, just shut your mouth. Uh, but it's also this idea to cease from labor 
or to lead a quiet life is one of the definitions that Thayer's gives, which is exactly how we have it used here in this text. And along with that particular definition, to lead a quiet life, they add to that definition by saying it is used to describe those who are not running hither and thither, but stay at home and mind their business. So there is this idea involved with this word, living a quiet life, of just keeping things simple, not running hither and thither. Someone said this morning as we were talking about this uh, in a, a different group, they, they said uh, they call that running to and fro. Uh, same idea, hither and thithers. Kind of anybody use the words hither and thither? I, I don't. Thayers did. I don't know how old that is. That's pretty old stuff. But we might call that running to and fro. But there's the idea of we're leading a quiet life. We're not busy doing all of that. We're not. We don't have a life that's full of all kinds of all stuff that we have to do. But then, so so you take that idea of the word. This, idea of rest and not running hither and thither and those things. But then you compare it or, or combine it with the concept of ambition that Paul, like Paul does here in 1 Thessalonians 4. And ambitious people are they're driven people, right? Ambitious people are focused. They don't do a lot of resting. Their lives are usually not defined as simple. Probably wouldn't be defined as quiet. Their lives are usually filled with all sorts of stuff. And so it's almost like these two ideas are complete opposites. Kind of like Paul saying, you know, I want you to make it your ambition to not be ambitious. I think that's kind of why I was drawn to this passage, because that kind of makes you think for just a moment. You want me to be ambitious about not being ambitious. But in light of the, the context here, at least the overall context, Remember, our context is increasing in love towards one another, increasing more and more. In light of that context, I think it really makes perfect sense that Paul uses these two words together. Because if we are not careful with our ambitions, if we are filled with all sorts of earthly or selfish ambitions, and we're too busy running as Thayer says, hither and thither, running to and fro, taking care of all those sorts of things. And there's not going to be enough time for us to love one another. There's not going to be enough time for us to show that love for one another so that we can increase more and more. Kind of like saying that we need to take time to smell the roses. We know that statement. But maybe just a little bit different spin on that one. It's more like take time to stop and notice the people. Take time to stop and notice the needs. If my life is so filled with all of the selfish ambitions that I have, I'm trying to do this, I'm trying to build that, I'm trying to put this together, and I'm running hither and thither and to and fro, I'm not going to have time to notice that you have a need. So a purposeful, quiet life helps us slow down so that we can do that and we can identify and recognize the needs of those we are supposed to be increasing in our love towards. Leading a, a quiet life is not something that is inwardly motivated. 
you know, that quiet, peaceful, nobody bothers me, I'm in my cabin on the mountain sort of thing. But is leading a quiet life that is something more outwardly motivated. My life is simple enough that I'm able to take my time and to use my time to love you. In my admonition to you this evening is that if your life sounds like what Thayer says, hither and thither, if your life is too busy for you to love, to help, to be hospitable, then you need to slow it down. You need to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. I don't know how long I just took. That was a last week's lesson. It took me like an hour to say all that last week. So you're welcome. I shortened that way down. For tonight's lesson, we're moving on from the idea of just simply living a quiet life. But this second thought that Paul puts with it, aspire to lead a quiet life and to mind your own business. And that's what I want to look at the rest of our time this evening. I want us to consider this idea of minding our own business, especially, especially in regard to increasing more and more in our love for one another. So from just an, an obvious logical viewpoint, right? I think we all know what Paul means. We're talking about loving one another and minding our own business. We cannot grow in love if we're always interfering and prying into the lives of others, right? I mean, that's just called looking for trouble, and love just doesn't work that way. And that's sort of an, an undisputed fact. I don't think there's anyone out there that would claim, oh, no, Todd, no, no, the way I should really love my, my brother is I should really just gossip about them and stir up trouble in their lives. Nobody would take that position. That is an obvious, logical conclusion. But as I mentioned, that's exactly what was happening among God's people in this day and time. And unfortunately, that's exactly what still happens today among God's people. Second Thessalonians chapter three, verse 11, he says that we hear that there were some among you walk in idleness. They're not busy at work, but they're busybodies. They were stirring up trouble, stirring up strife. First Timothy chapter five and verse 13, Paul talks about some there who were were idlers. They were going about from house to house. And he says not only were they, they idlers, but also they were gossips and busybodies saying things that they should not. Peter had to warn the brethren in first Peter chapter two and verse one to put away all malice. And all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Same thing in Ephesians chapter 4 from uh, Paul when he tells the Ephesians that they needed to let all bitterness and wrath, anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And it's shameful to think that these things were and that these things are taking place among the people of God. You know, what are the, uh, the two big accusations against Christians? This morning I asked, what's the one? And then somebody spurted out another one. I was like, oh yeah, there's two. What's the two big accusations that people have against Christians? Hypocrites, sometimes they call us, right? But the other one is, 
We're judgmental, right? That's what everybody says of us. We're, we're judgmental people. You want to know why people have that accusation against Christians? You're not going to like the answer. Because we are. We all do it to some extent. We see somebody doing something that's not right, not the way it ought to be done, and we just got to say something, don't we? In fact, I did it last week. In fact, I was at work. I think I probably had my notebook out on my desk. I usually do. And I was probably making notes on this very sermon. And I had to deal with somebody who did something that I thought was not right. It was a, what I thought was a dumb move. And talked about that move, and why that move was made. Uh, and it was really, it's not like it was a secret or nothing, but it was basically just me and that person knew about it. Um, not that it needed to be hidden. It's just one of those things. But uh, I hung up the phone. A little bit later, the next conversation I had with somebody, what do you think I said? You won't know what, what old so-and-so did. Can you believe he did that? Why do we do stuff like that? It seems harmless when we're doing it, doesn't it? But you know what that is? It's slander. It's anything but harmless. It's slander, malice, evil speaking of others. I looked up those words, or at least those two, slander and malice. Slander is speech that is injurious to another's good name. That's what I did so casually last week. Uh, malice, it means ill will, a desire to injure, a desire to hurt somebody. And most of the time we do these things to one another. We do these things to people that we say that we love, people that we do love. People that we would never go out and physically injure. But yeah, we tear them down all the time verbally like it's no big deal. Our mouth is one of the most dangerous and destructive weapons that we have. Maybe the most destructive. Think of all the, the guns and the weapons you have in your gun cabinet at home. They've caused a lot of destruction. Hopefully if we're doing our good job hunting right and we're we, uh, we use those things. We do a lot of destructive things with those weapons. But none of them are as destructive or have caused much destruction as our mouths. Yet we rarely treat it as such. Reputations are shattered. Lives are destroyed every day by the words that we say. And I want us to look this evening at the book of James. And the third chapter, what James has to say about our tongue, about our speech, about our inability to keep quiet as we ought and to mind our own business. James says in James chapter three and beginning in verse, I'll start in verse five. He says, even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire. It's a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body. It sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Verse 8, he says that no man can tame it. No man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, 
these things ought not to be. But yet they are. The words we speak can be dangerous, hurtful, destructive. And our mouths require great restraint, discipline, and consideration. The point that James is making here is that that restraint, that that uh, that discipline, it's not going to be an easy thing to do. He said there in verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird of rep- reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But not the tongue. No man can, 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 can tame the tongue, he says in verse 8. It's a daunting and difficult task. Therefore, make it, as Paul said, your ambition to lead a quiet life, to tame the tongue. I love the, the picture that James is pointing here or painting here in James chapter three. If you look back up James chapter three and verse one, where he really started with this idea, he, he started with the idea of teaching. He said, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. And so we're talking about teachers here in James chapter 3. And how do teachers teach? With their mouths, right? With the tongue. So we're talking about teachers teaching with their mouths, teaching with their tongue. And he warns us about the influence of that tongue and and all the things that we just read, the, the capability it has of all these horrible things. And so as we teach one another, We need to be careful. We need to be cautious about the things that we say, the things that we teach, because they have tremendous consequences. So then he says, after talking about all of that, says there in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show. Don't let him tell you. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. I am wise. Look how smart I am. That's what these people were trying to communicate with their mouths, with their tongues. That's not an effective teacher. That's what he says. Who among you is is wise and understanding? Who's out there claiming to you, telling you that they're wise? Let them show it to you. But that's what these people were doing with their tongue, with their mouth. They were using that mouth to promote themselves. They weren't really using their mouth to teach others. And so you get the picture here, right? Here's all of these teachers here gathered together, maybe. Maybe it's a, a Bible study sort of situation. And there are folks there, there's teachers there who aren't there to teach. They have selfish ambitions. They have selfish intentions. They're full of envy and of self-seeking. They think they are the ones that are wise. They think they are the ones who have understanding. They have all the answers. And so you can imagine a room filled with people like that. You can imagine them all talking over each other, each one trying to make their own point. Nobody listening, nobody talking, or not, not everybody talking, just talking, nobody listening. This wisdom, James said, that doesn't descend from above. That's earthly, that's sensual, that's demonic. 
No one's teaching. No one's learning. Just a bunch of noise, a bunch of confusion. That's what he says in verse 16. For where that exists, envy, self-seeking, then there will be confusion in every evil thing there, he says in verse 16. But hopefully, in that same room of teachers, if we are listening to James' warning here, there will be those who are filled with wisdom that is from above. That's what he talks about in verse 17. He says, but the wisdom that is from above, first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's binding your own business right there. Someone who's there not to argue or to prove their own point. Someone that's willing to yield. Someone that's actually there to teach. He's impartial. He's sincere. And that man, the quiet, peaceful, gentle man, the one who has learned to control, the one who has learned to bridle his own tongue, his teaching, his work, his mouth, is full of mercy. It's full of good fruits. We all know that to be true, right? So we all know that guy. We've been in those rooms where everybody's talking over each other, and that guy in the corner, the one that's quiet, the one that hasn't said anything yet. When that guy does open his mouth, people listen, don't they? Because we recognize. We recognize that what's coming from that person's mouth is probably wisdom. Wisdom from above. It's pure. It's peaceful. It's gentle. It's willing to live. Uh, willing to yield. It's full of mercy and good fruits. But try to be that guy, right? Try to be that guy in the midst of an argument or disagreement or heated discussion. It's hard to do. In fact, I would say most of us probably struggle trying to be that guy in those sorts of situations. And so as we close out this evening, I want us to look at some passages that teach us about controlling our tongue, about keeping a quiet spirit. And for our practical applications this evening, I'm not going to give you any practical applications. I'm going to let the Bible give us some practical applications. And we're just going to read these passages They give us really the best applications to this and just straightforward applications. I picked out four, probably many others, but these are the four that I picked out that say it plainly. What we need to do in order to control our tongue, in order to live a quiet and peaceful life and mind our own business. So the first one comes from the book of James. We're already there in James chapter 1. James chapter 1 and verse 19 when he said, so then... My beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Oh, that we would all heed that simple advice. Reading some uh, commentaries uh, on that particular passage, and one of them pointed out that, you know, we're given two ears and one mouth for a reason, right? That we need to be. We need to be swift to hear. That's we got two ears to be tuned in to all the things that we can hear. We're only giving us one mouth. 
We need to be slow to use that mouth. Proverbs chapter 17. Proverbs chapter 17 and uh, verse, verse 27. He who has knowledge, wise person, spares his words. And a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. The maybe newer saying uh, would be better to keep your mouth closed and let people think that you're a fool, right, than to open it and remove all doubt. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. And I really like Paul's advice here in Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 29, when he said, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good. Necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Don't even speak unless it's necessary. Unless it's good for edification and for grace. That's actually a step further than our saying that if we don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Paul says here, if you don't have anything useful to say, if it's not going to serve a purpose, don't say it. And then the last we'll look at is, is 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 is actually addressing the women. He's dress, addressing the wives. Uh, but I think there's a statement here that applies really to all of us. So we'll read the, the whole thought. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning of verse 1, he says, Wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. And he says, do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, and putting on fine apparel, that you're, you're adorning yourself not just with all of these things that will cause others to look at you and notice you, But instead, he says, rather it be what they can't necessarily see with their eyes. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. And this is the part I wanted us to notice, which is very precious in the sight of God. You know, our world today is. It's filled with what I call a lot of look at me noise. People, everywhere you look, screaming and yelling for attention. Social media is full of it. They do all sorts of outrageous things to get attention and approval of others. I mean, people make TikTok videos of themselves doing choreographed dances. And they actually want people to watch them do that. They want people to, they they really want people to see them do this. And then pointed words. Y'all see that? Y'all know what I'm talking about. What is that? What possesses people to want to do stuff like that? Look at me. Look at me. I'm embarrassed just doing it uh, as a joke. 
People do it for real, and they want you to see them do it. It's like a plague in our, our culture today. Adorning themselves, all these outward things that they think that you're going to look at and think that they are something, they are something special. A lot of noise. But if you want the approval of God, it's the quiet, the gentle, the humble. Those are the things that are precious in the sight of God. They say the squeaky wheel gets the grease, don't they? But does it really? Squeaky wheel might get the grease a couple of times, but ultimately, wheel keeps squeaking. It's not getting any grease. It's getting replaced. It's getting thrown into garbage. That's the world's wisdom. It's earthly. It's sensual. It's demonic. No one respects a squeaky wheel. And it's not precious in the sight of God. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Mind your own business and to work with your own hands. And one of the most noisiest things in our lives is the sin. The sin and the turmoil that it creates when we commit it. Kind of left that part out of the sermon this evening. You can't live a quiet life if your life is full of sin. If that describes you this evening, quieten that noise down. Get rid of that sin. God has given you a way. Jesus Christ bled and died so that you could... Have that sin taken away from you, taken out of your life, so that you could live the peaceful, gentle life that God wants you to live. Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. He gives you that rest by taking away all the unrest that you yourself have caused. Isn't that a, a beautiful thing? I break it, he fixes it. If you need fixing this evening and we can help you uh, get your life right with Jesus in any way, we offer you the time to come forward and we'll help you. We'll do whatever you need us to do. All you have to do is come forward as we all stand and as we all sing. I hear thy word.